0: have your scriptures with you this morning, we invite you to turn with us first to the book of Romans chapter 2 as we introduce to you a very fundamental subject from the Word of God, one that is very relevant to our daily experience, our walk with Christ, the subject of repentance. As we talk about and we introduce the subject of repentance to you today, much like the concept recently that we talked about sanctification, you might think, oh boy, here we go, an hour lecture on how we ought to do better and be better as disciples of Christ. But I think as this message begins to unfold before you, you'll see how beautiful of a thing this is, much like sanctification. When we talked about that, holiness is beautiful, and so to preach on sanctification is a very beautiful subject to preach. If I asked you all this morning if you thought that your Lord was a beautiful, beautiful Savior, one of the words that I think that we could use to describe Jesus Christ is beautiful. The thought of Him, His name is a sweet name. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds. Our God is wonderful. He is our Counselor. He is our Shepherd, our Husband, and our Friend. He's our great High Priest. He's our apostle. He's the good shepherd. Jesus is beautiful, as terrifying as God is to us. We looked at Psalm 99 and how God is described as being terrible, and that doesn't mean awful. It means terrifying. As terrifying as He is, He's also beautiful in that He is holy, much like the concept of sanctification, living in a holy way because holiness is beautiful, it's liberating, it's wholesome, it's peaceful, and it yields such wonderful peace in your life. The subject of repentance is a sister concept to that. And it's a beautiful thing when someone laments over their iniquities because Christ has given them a new nature. And as they grow in that, as they begin to experience different levels of repentance, as God shows them things that they need to repent of, what you find them living is a very beautiful life. It's a wonderful life to live with the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no better of a life to live than a life that is lived in the service to our God. And those of you who have been in this world with Christ, walking with Christ, more decades than some of the rest of us, you can look at the younger people and you can exhort them that for... All of these years of your life, God has never forsaken you. He's been with you. He has helped you. And as you serve Him, each and every day you have great wisdom, you have great insight, you have great leadership through the Spirit, and you can sing with the hymn writer, Thus far the Lord has led me on, thus far His power has prolonged my days. And so as we introduce this subject to your repentance, we do so not from the perspective of a nagging, dry lecture, but again, the fact that to walk with Christ is a beautiful thing. To walk with Christ is a beautiful thing. As far as our objectives today, we want to consider, first of all, the root of repentance in our lives, and there's a sentence that I'm going to share with you as we consider the root of repentance, where it comes from. We want to share also with you the nature of repentance, how we're commanded and enabled by God to repent. We're both commanded and enabled by God to repent. And finally, what repentance actually looks like. What does it look like when a person turns from something? And you might think, well, well, obviously they turn from it, but there's a passage in the book of Ephesians that I want to share with you that has always been very insightful to me because you find in that passage a little glimpse into, maybe in one example, the concept of repentance encapsulated in that particular passage. As you're turning to the book of Romans chapter 2, if you haven't already turned there, we want to share with you a couple of definitions of the word repent. The most simple definition of the word repent we find often in commentaries and theological writings, and it's simply to turn about. And as we begin looking at this word just briefly from the first usages of it in the Old Testament, it can mean simply to turn about or to make a change, as you might say. So to repent of something is to make a change. The Oxford English Dictionary defines it in a little more complicated of a manner, and I've always loved this definition because it gives us uh, insight into why the KJV translators chose that particular word as they translated our Bibles from the original Hebrew and Greek into English. And might I just add to that, that the KJV translators translated the original languages into English perfectly. What they translated was right. It is good. And if you look up the definition, a lot of times people will look at it from a 20-20 lens, and they'll say, well... That word doesn't mean that today, and so they mistranslated it, and they just exposed their ignorance because when it was translated, it was the perfect word from the English lexicon at the time. Anyway, in the Oxford English Dictionary, the word is defined as to be affected with contrition or regret. Now hang on to that word contrition because as we begin looking at repentance, what it means from a biblical perspective, one of the things that we're going to talk about is the fact that the new birth sparks a nature in you that mourns sin. Well, what is one of the definitions of the Oxford English Dictionary, this word repent? Contrition, to experience contrition or regret, and it'll expand upon that in just a moment. Number two, to feel regret. Number three, to feel contrition, compunction, sorrow, or regret for something one has done or left undone. Now, there's a word in that definition that I want to emphasize for you just briefly, and it's the word compunction. What would the root of that word compunction be? Puncture. Another variation of that word in our language is puncture. To get a little ahead of ourselves, there's a verse in the book of Acts chapter 2 when Peter preaches the word to a large audience of Jewish Devout Jewish men. It says that when they heard the word of the crucifixion of Christ and their nation's guilt, what happened to their heart? They were pricked in their heart. Or, in other words, their heart was punctured by the message. Repentance, one definition, is compunction. I love etymology. You know that. How words developed, how they connect how you learn insight into language through variations of certain words. As we study repentance today, understand that the word can simply mean compunction, a pricking of the heart, sorrow or regret for something one has done. When you do something wrong and you feel guilty over it, or left undone. In other words, when you intended to do something and you didn't do it and you regret not doing it. Now, just briefly to engage in a tangent there, when Paul expressed his heart to you in Romans chapter 7, not only did he lament things that he did that were wrong, but he lamented the things that he wanted to do that were right that he didn't do. And that is the experience of a born-again person in this world. There are things that we don't want to do that we find ourselves doing. Amen? And there are things that we want to do that we don't do. You might have the good intention to read your Bible before going to bed. And the next thing you know, after three shows on Netflix and one on TiVo and an hour of scrolling Facebook, all the time in your evening has evaporated, and now you're dozing off in your recliner and you've not opened the Word of God. And when you think back on that, what is it that you often feel? What is it that I might often feel? Regret for not doing something that I should have done. So the word repent can mean simply, in its most basic form, the sorrow or regret that you experience in your heart for either doing something you shouldn't have done or not doing something that was good that you needed to do. Now, this could be in a spiritual sense or it could be in a natural sense. Every Monday, I intend to work out. And for 10 years, that was almost religion to me. On Monday, I work out. And for years and years, I don't have a heater in my garage. I do not pay a gym subscription. They will pay. Pry that money out of my cold, dead fingers. That and in the gym, there are all kinds of people, and I like being alone. So, Monday afternoon, I work out in my garage. I've got weights, I've got a machine. In previous years, as I was younger and enthusiastic, if it were 28 degrees in that garage, I worked out, bundled up, dressed up. Guess what has happened to me in the past two months? I became lazy. And every Monday when I go to bed, I think, I didn't work out today. There's been about 12 Mondays, 15 Mondays that I go to bed, I didn't work out, and I experienced regret over something that was left undone. This can be in a spiritual sense. It could be in a natural sense, just giving you the definition of the word. Of course, we look at it today from a spiritual sense spiritual sense. It also means to change one's mind with regard to past action or conduct through dissatisfaction with it or its results. One example that we look at today is when Christ or one of his ministers calls on people to repent and believe something. When we change a doctrinal position and we we become more precise in our theology, in our understanding We have, in a sense, experienced repentance. You see that this is something that we are to pursue every day of our lives. It's not something that you say, well, I did that January the 8th of 1972, and I haven't had to do it since. That's not biblical repentance. It's something that we have to pursue each and every day. As Jesus said, take up your cross and deny me every day. We are to seek repentance every day. And lastly, the definition is to be sad and to mourn. Originally, in the early parts of the Old Testament, this word, rather than being used in a religious sense, I repented of something that I did wrong. It's actually used with reference to God's interaction with people. In the book of Genesis 6, you don't have to turn there, when God looks at the wickedness and the violence among humanity... We read that it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth. Obviously, God doesn't have to turn from anything. We think of repent and we have this one little pigeonhole definition of it to turn from something we shouldn't be doing. But we read in Genesis 6 where it repented the Lord that he made man upon the earth. What does that mean? Well, what was the last definition that we shared with you from the OED? to be sad and to mourn. When God looked at the depravity of humanity, it grieved Him. It grieved Him when He looked at the sinfulness and the wickedness and the violence that permeated human society. You might wonder, what does God think when He looks at human society today and it's a violent place? Riots and gangs and wars and cruelty and oppression. God grieves that. Now, God doesn't have emotion the way we have emotion, but scripture uses emotional terms to describe God's interactions with humanity. He's long suffering, or he is loving, or he has hatred towards actions and even some individuals. Here we read that it repented the Lord, it grieved him because of the sinfulness of man. In Exodus 32, God was going to destroy the nation of Israel and build a nation out of Moses because they had betrayed him and began to worship the golden calf and dance around it. And Moses called upon God to repent of the evil that he was going to do unto them. And the Lord repented of the evil that he was going to do unto them. Does that mean that God realized it was wrong and suddenly changed from it? God forbid. God is never wrong. simply meant that he turned his wrath. He turned in His wrath. Why did He turn from His wrath if He is an omniscient, omnipotent, immutable God? You see, God is immutable. That means He doesn't change. In events such as that, when God repented of the evil, it isn't that God changed His mind. It's that based upon His immutable attributes which, by the way, is rich in mercy and slow to wrath, when one of his children intercede on the behalf of other of his children because he is so rich in mercy and he is immutable, he repented of the evil that he was going to do unto them. It isn't that God changed his mind somehow violating immutability. The fact that he repented of the evil is based upon his immutable attributes, being rich in mercy and slow to wrath. But God repented of the evil that he was going to do unto them. Psalm 110 the Lord has sworn and will not repent, a prophecy of the Lord Jesus being a high priest unto us. There are passages that speak about the fact that God will not repent. What does that mean? It means that He will not change His mind in His covenant to save His people from their sins. Praise God. Praise God that He will not repent and change His mind about saving you from your sins. Our study today will focus first on repentance as a grace and then a command and an action. Now I said that there would be a sentence that I would give you and that's basically it repentance is both a grace and a command and I'm roughly quoting another sentence from Elder Michael Gowen Systematic Theology I discovered this years ago but I like the way that he wrote it, repentance is a grace and repentance is a command. In other words, it's something that God gives you through his unmerited favor. But on the other hand, it's something that God commands you to do each and every day. I said when we were studying together sanctification, our ability to serve God is given to us by God and is through God. Now, in a physical sense, in him we live and move and have our being, but in a spiritual sense... He works in us to will and to do of His good pleasure. This means the desire to serve Him and the ability to serve Him comes from where? Your own natural goodness, inclination, your decision-making, your lifting yourself up by the bootstraps and turning over a new leaf. No. Your ability to serve Him comes to you by Him and is through Him. We will and do because He works in us. So our desire to serve Him comes from Him. The ability to do what He commands us to do is done through Him. And without Him, we have no ability to please Him or to render anything that is pleasing to Him. We serve Him in a pleasing way how? Referencing back to last week. How did Abel offer a more pleasing sacrifice to God than Cain? Because he did it how? By Faith faith in you is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Faith in you is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Everything that we do pleasing to God, we do through Christ in us. You see how repentance can be an uplifting, in my opinion, concept to study because we're learning about God's power in us. And to me, that is exciting. It's invigorating. You think, how can I do something? How can I serve God? How can I find strength? Because He lives in you and He gives you the strength. Ask him for the strength, child of God. Ask him for the strength. Romans chapter 2, we begin looking at repentance as a grace, something that God blesses us with. Paul's intended meaning here in Romans 2 is confront a hypothetical judge. And you'll notice this throughout the book of Romans. When Paul writes this epistle, he often has an invisible hypothetical adversary that he argues with. And you can see this demonstrated with expressions such as, thou mayest say, you may say, or thou sayest. And then he'll often turn around and say, but I say. And when he says, but I say, he's giving you what he believes in opposition to his invisible hypothetical opponent, And this was a form of dialectical reasoning in that day. And we do this in today's time when we play devil's advocate. How many of you know what that means, to play devil's advocate? When you're talking about something and then you consider it from an imaginary opponent's point of view and you argue against what you perceive to be their objection to your position. Paul is arguing against an imaginary judge here in Romans chapter 2. Therefore thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemneth thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. Now, Paul in Romans 1 spoke about universal depravity throughout all of mankind. And if someone wants to Dig into Romans 1. It's one of my favorite passages to dig into because it explains Genesis 6 that we referred to moments ago. It explains why the earth was filled with violence. It explains why men in society without Christ fall further and further and further into depraved behavior. He then spins it around and begins to criticize the judge. Now, what's the problem with being a judge? Since we're all guilty of violating God's law... When we condemn another, we condemn ourselves because we're all guilty. If we didn't know that we're all guilty, let me introduce that concept to you. We are all guilty. And you might be guilty of one sin and I'm guilty of another sin, but God's law condemns all sin. And so if I'm guilty of one and criticize you, I might as well be condemning myself. We're all guilty of one of God's laws or another. And the truth be told, if you want to dig through the Ten Commandments, which is God's moral code, if you will, the morality of God revealed unto us, I refer to it today on the radio broadcast as moral absolutes. If we look at the moral absolutes of the Ten Commandments, we've broken pretty much all of them. We've broken pretty much all of them. We recently talked about this. Thou shalt not murder. You say, I've never killed anybody. But Jesus said, if you're angry with a brother without cause, or you hate someone for no reason, you have violated the spirit of that law, and you're guilty of breaking that law. We look at someone who murders, and we think that's the worst type of person who's ever lived, and we're actually guilty of breaking that law too. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever looked at another person with lust in your heart for them, you have committed adultery already in your heart. And so we are all condemned as adulterers. <coughs> Thou shalt not bear false witness. Have you ever told a lie? We come forth from the womb speaking lies. We are all, we are all condemned lying, cheating, cheating murderers that is all of us and it doesn't matter how good we think we are Jesus if he were to reason through that with us the same with the rich young ruler he would say but one thing thou lackest because we're all sinners all have sinned and come short of the glory of God therefore when we judge who are we actually condemning at the same time ourselves who is the righteous judge The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the only one who is worthy to judge the eternal states of men? The Lord Jesus Christ. Does that mean that we should go around life saying anything goes? Judge not that you be not judged. No, the next sentence in Matthew's gospel says, With what judgment ye judge, the same shall be meted to you. In other words, God will hold you accountable according to your judgment. If you're harsh on others, He will be harsh on you. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, that, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing, listen to this, that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. What leads us to repentance? the goodness of God, the goodness of God. Sometimes we think that fear of punishment leads us to repentance. And in a natural sense, even a natural man can turn from things that he's doing wrong if he believes that the police are going to kick down his door and arrest him. That's why we have law enforcement. It's why God instituted the powers that be in the world to be a terror unto evil and cause them to, in a natural sense, turn from things that they do that are wrong. But What is it that leads us to repentance? The goodness of God. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Now, Paul's words here are terrifying. That little gem in verse 4, the goodness of God leads thee to repentance, is why we're there. As he continues to confront this hypothetical objector, this judge, he goes on to say that after the hardness, and impenitent heart... Now, by the way, impenitent means a heart without repentance. A heart without repentance. So, penitent is what is sparked at the new birth. when It hurts when you do wrong. An impenitent heart is one that feels no remorse over sin. Treasureth unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds... Paul's point here is if you and I despise God's goodness as we look out at Him being kind to others and granting others repentance, thinking that we're better than them, what we don't realize is the goodness and long-suffering and mercifulness and graciousness of God that we are angry at as He deals with another is the very reason we don't end up in hell. And so if I were to look out at God being merciful to someone who has sinned, heaven forbid someone has sinned, we've all sinned and I judge them harshly, what I'm doing is saying, God, I despise the goodness that you had that saved me. Without which, what would happen to us? We would have rendered to us, according to our deeds, what would that result in? Indignation and wrath for eternity. Without God's goodness and His long suffering and His mercy and His grace in my life, I would end up, in an eternity of indignation and wrath, you think about it, we have it depicted so often in today's time that when we die, when an unsaved person dies, they go to hell, which is a big red cave that Satan sits on a throne of. Understand, when a person is saved from hell, they're not saved from being tormented by Satan in Satan's dominion and domain for eternity. They're saved from being... Tormented by God. It's God's wrath and God's indignation. Who punishes in the lake of fire? It is God. God saves you from the penalty of your sin in God's wrath. We need to have our heads connected correctly on that point. What's our point being in Romans 2? It is the goodness of God that leads thee to repentance. Repentance is... First a grace and then a command. It is something that is given to you. What is the opposite of repentance in this verse? Impenitent heart. A heart that feels no remorse over sin. As we have that thought in mind, what then is entry level, if you want to use that word, repentance? A heart that feels remorse over sin. A heart that feels remorse over sin. Turn over to the book of uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Now this is a verse that we could spend an entire hour on and we have many times. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness. What's the context? The second coming of Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is not slack. He's not forgetful. He's not lazy. He isn't a sluggard concerning his promise to come again. Jesus is not up in heaven on his throne, having forgotten that we're down here. And here we are, two millennia later, wondering: Has he forgotten about us? He's not slack concerning his promise, but he's long-suffering to usward. Most important word in the context of this verse is usward, not willing that any should perish. Any of what usward. But that all what all of us should come to repentance, now, who is the us in this passage? if you pay attention, you'll learn something. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. This means that Peter writes second Peter to the same audience as first Peter, to whom was first Peter written? First Peter chapter one, verses one and two. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. God is not willing that any elect should perish, but that all the elect should come to repentance. That's what that verse means. What then does it mean, come to repentance? Does this mean that Jesus isn't going to come back until every last child of God joins the church or turns from every sin. You have all kinds of crazy ideas in the world today about repentance. One of them is that you, to go to heaven, have to repent of every single sin that you've ever committed or you're never going to stand before God in His glory. Remember that Jesus died to take away your what? Your sins. He died to take away your sins. Do you have to repent of every single sin whatsoever to stand before God? Every sin has to be taken away from you to stand before God. But does that happen through your repenting of it? Might I suggest to you that in our own flesh nature, we are so depraved, we are so sinful, we don't even perceive every sin that we ever commit. And I have the memory of a gnat. I don't remember every sin I've ever committed to tell God I'm sorry and repent of it. It's not what we're learning about here. It's not what we're learning about here. There's no way that we could repent of every single sin because we don't even perceive every single sin. We don't perceive every sin. We don't perceive but the sins that God reveals unto us. And by the time he reveals it to us, if we're born again in our teenage years or our adult years, decades have gone by with no repentance, countless sins, because our existence without the new birth is sin. People who say things such as that don't understand the depth of sinfulness, the exceeding sinfulness of sin from a biblical perspective. What's Peter telling us? Remember the context is the second coming. God is not slack. He's long-suffering that none of us should perish, but that all of us should come to repentance The context being the second coming of Christ. What is he telling you? Jesus returns after the last heir of promise is born again. That means that he's waiting for every covenant soul. Everyone, Father, Son, and Spirit, covenanted on the behalf of before the foundation of the world. When the last heir of promise is born again, the Lord Jesus has nothing else to wait for. But that hourglass begins to tick away. I just combined two time devices and it bothered me. Hourglasses don't tick. (laughs) The sands begin to slip fast through the hourglass and time begins to expire. I don't know if it will be the moment when they're born again or if they will suffer in this world with him for a little span of time. But I know that he's waiting for the last heir of promise to be born again. And he describes that here, Peter does, As coming to repentance. What does he mean? Coming to the change in nature that we experience at the new birth. And he describes it here as a state of repentance, as a noun, not a verb. He doesn't say he's waiting for the last one to repent, but come to repentance. Noun, not verb. And this emphasizes for us repentance as a grace, a grace. What is our nature without Christ in the world? We recently looked at these passages. Romans chapter 3. There is no fear of God before our eyes. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. They're all gone out of the way. They're all gone aside. The throat is an open sepulcher. Romans chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 2. We are by nature the children of wrath even as others, dead in trespasses and in sins. Titus chapter 3, we are hateful and hating one another. I cannot overemphasize how depraved we are without Christ through Adam. And yet, at the new birth, we are made partakers of the divine nature. There is a nature in our soul that is just like the nature of Christ. And that's what Peter is referring to here, that... He will come back, Christ will come back after the last heir of promise is given this change that he describes here as coming to repentance. Repentance is first a grace. It is first a grace. Repentance is the result of the new birth and not the cause. The way that our Baptist forefathers would say it in the 17th century is that these attributes such as repentance and faith are evidences of a gracious state. What is a gracious state? A state of existence in the grace of God. You old school Baptist can take the subject of repentance And make it a lesson on sovereign grace. Repentance is a grace before it's an action, before it's a command. It is the result of the new birth here on its most basic level, the state of being of the person after being born again because of that one nature that they have in addition to the other nature that they already had. Those two natures wore the rest of your days. And depending on which one you feed, it will be dominant. How glorious it is in the life of a child of God when they put to death the old nature, the old man, and they put on the new man. Now, I want to emphasize for just a moment contrition. What was one of the definitions of repentance from the Oxford English Dictionary? To repent is to experience contrition. What happens at the moment of the new birth? According to Hebrews 8, we talk about this a lot here. It's one of my favorite subjects. And I fit it into as many messages as I can, and I'm not a bit ashamed of it. I'm not the least bit ashamed. I hope it's burned into your brain. At the new birth, the laws of God are written on your what? Heart. Laws of God are written on your heart. Heart. That means from the inside out, you know it's wrong to kill, steal, and to murder, to destroy. You know that it's wrong to do that. And since you know that it's wrong to do that, and you know that you've done that, what do you experience when you think about those things? Contrition. That is one of the definitions of repentance. And that's what Peter is speaking of here, the change of nature, in 2 Peter chapter 3, and verse 9. All of those who are born again experience contrition. We all mourn over our sins. It's impossible when the Spirit of God lives in you and speaks to you and you have an unction, an anointing of the Spirit, it is impossible to sin without feeling the regret, at least at some point, for your own sinfulness. Does that mean we're aware of every sin? No, of course not. Of course not. But in a general way, if we are born again, we experience the sorrow over that. Sam Bryant said about 15 years ago in a sermon that I heard him preach, a child of God will sin, but he's not going to enjoy it the way that an unregenerate will. Because when, though the flesh may enjoy pleasure for a season, David enjoyed the sin with Bathsheba in the moment, but he didn't when God confronted him with it. There is contrition that we experience after periods of sin because The Spirit lives within us. To say the opposite, to say there's none, would be to claim an ineffective new birth. It is the effectual call, after all. What is the root of effectual? Effect. (laughs) It is not an ineffectual call. Does that mean we're super saints? No, sir. We struggle every day of our lives. Look at so many examples like Samson and David and Solomon, Lot. But there's a... There's a vexing that takes place. Even Lot didn't intend to mention him, but since we love tangents so much here at Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. um, If you read the Old Testament account of Lot, you'd think that is a wicked, unrighteous, unregenerate man for the things that Lot did. He was foolish. He was sinful. And yet how does Peter describe him? Just Lot, who's righteous Soul was what? Vexed. There's a vexation in our soul at the wickedness of this world as a result of grace. And that vexation is one of the definitions of repentance. The state, not the action. The state which is a grace. One of the roles of the Spirit, John 16, 8, is to reprove the world of sin. He reproves us through speaking to us sometimes in conjunction with His Word. We'll share that with you. We'll have to give you the summarized version from here on out because there's ten minutes left. This is point one. We have two more points. Y'all don't mind, you know, preaching till one, right? Um, I probably would. I would be like Jesus in John 6. Will you also go away? (laughs) I would hear the clattering of dishes in the lunchroom as y'all ate while I continued to talk to an empty room. Take heart if you are reproved of sin. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are they that what? mourn, for they shall be comforted. When you mourn over your sin, child of God, rejoice. An unregenerate doesn't feel that struggle. The gospel message is for you to comfort you, to strengthen you, and to build you up. Now let's transition briefly into repentance as a command. Being given a penitent heart, that is to say a heart that is convicted of sin, is the most basic fundamental level of how Scripture uses this word. Again, from Second Peter chapter 3, we're commanded many times to repent, to turn from our iniquities and even our false notions about God and about the world over and over again. Repentance is not something, as it's often depicted today that you do once, and you did that once, and you got that done, and now the rest of your life is just something else. Examples of this, when Peter stood before the believing Jews in Acts chapter 2, they were pricked in their heart. They were devout Jews out of every nation under heaven. They asked Peter in their contrition, what do we do? Peter stands up and he preaches Christ. And he says, You Jews, your nation is guilty of murdering Christ. You will be held accountable. And national judgment was impending for them. And it came in AD 70. And so Peter tells them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. If you believe the message of Christ, what is it that we exhort you to do today? To repent. And be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. To repent and be baptized in the name of God. Sometimes repentance looks like professing Him before men and joining His church. There is no separating repentance and baptism from the Lord's church. They are the ordinances of His church. What does He call upon you to do? To repent and join in with His church. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 Jesus preached publicly repent and believe the gospel turn from your false ideas and from sinful lifestyles and believe the word that's preached to you In the book of Revelation chapter 2 I was thinking of this passage this morning just to demonstrate how repentance is something that is for me and you every day Jesus speaking to an experienced strong sound Church, a mature church, but also a declining church because they left their first love. Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and what? And repent. In fact, if you look at Jesus' words to these churches, that word will occur more than once. Repent. Church, repent. Churches stand in need of repentance. This is something we are to seek each and every day of our lives. Now, even in this, we are enabled by God's grace. You and I need repentance. I need repentance every day. I need repentance every night. I know that it's a grace that God has given me, but it's also something I've been commanded to do. Let's look at the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And look at how grace works in what we hear to enable this. Now I rejoice, Paul says, not that you were made sorry. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and absolutely raked them over the coals. We studied 1 Corinthians in 2008. It took us 18 months to go through the book of 1 Corinthians. 18 months, that's a long book. So you know, if you were here then, and for those of you that weren't, the church at Corinth had so many errors. Loose lifestyle, loose discipline, rampant, grievous sin among the congregations to the extent of people having affairs with relatives in the church. You think, what sort of a mess was that place? That was such a wicked culture that if somebody wanted to offend you in the first century, they'd call you a Corinthian. It was a very wicked culture, much like A lot of our country today, especially in our larger cities. They denied the resurrection. They turned communion into a drunken party reserved only for the elite in the church and not for everyone else. That church was in trouble. Paul rebukes them. And in 2 Corinthians 7, he refers back. Look at verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. In other words, I'm not sorry that I did it, though I did mourn over the fact that I had to. That's what that means. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. If I ever preach something that makes you feel bad for something you've done, I don't rejoice that I made you feel bad. In other words, I don't want to torment you. I don't just want to make you feel bad for the sake of you feeling bad. There are preachers who do that. And I question their sanity and their motive. But I rejoice that you sorrowed to what? Repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might receive damage by us and nothing. Listen, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of this world worketh death. We've all seen the sorrow of this world work death in people around us. Sorrow that is so great a person might even take their own life, God forbid. But this isn't that type of sorrow. It's a godly sorrow. Why? Because the goodness of God leads us to repentance over and over. Every time we're blessed to repent, every time we pursue it, godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation of what? Of a church that desperately needed it because they were going to destroy themselves. And this was something that was not to be repented of. What did God use in conjunction with His goodness and the Spirit and everything else? He used the words of a preacher to cause contrition What I like to think of this as is our very own David and Nathan the prophet moment. Do you remember when David sinned and Nathan came unto him and he tells this elaborate parable about a man who took another man's lamb and slaughtered it to impress out-of-town guests, and David says, I'll kill the man. And Nathan looks at him square in the eye and he says, Thou art the man. There are times when God gives us our Thou art the man moments. And it causes us sorrow, but not for the sake of sorrow, for the sake of repentance, to salvation not to be repented of, deliverance in our daily lives, in other words. You remember the prodigal son, how he came to himself? These are our coming-to-ourself moments. And you can probably think back in your own personal life to dozens if not hundreds of these moments where you realize that something you had done was not right and you mourn it and you lament it, might I suggest to you, child of God, that in the instant when you feel that contrition, you immediately, immediately seek to make it right. Maybe you screamed at your spouse, then immediately go back to her and say, I'm sorry, or him and say, I'm sorry. Maybe you did something harsh to your child, I'm sorry. This past week, I got all over Micah. He has this habit of getting out of the bed 15 times after he's put to sleep. And I'm really sitting here thinking, honey, do we have any Benadryl? Anyway, (laughs) please go to bed. He comes downstairs, and I'm all over him, and he was actually bringing something down that he had been told to bring down or something, I don't remember. And I felt so bad. Because he was doing something good and I got all over him. And you know what I had to do? I had to say, Son, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Coming to ourself moments when we realize what we did wasn't right and we come to ourselves and we seek to make it right. Now, as far as what repentance looks like, and we'll give you this passage and close for today. What does it look like? It's a grace. It's something God gives us and gives us the ability to do more. It's sparked by new life in Christ. It's a command that we're commanded to do. And since we're commanded to do it, we're responsible for doing it. It means it's not automatic. And it doesn't happen unless we pursue it. What does it look like? Ephesians chapter 4 Paul wrote, let him that stole, this is verse 28, steal no more. This means that in the church at Ephesus, there were former thieves that had repented. If you read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you know that there are all sorts of iniquities that people had committed in that church. Even to things that would cause great shame. Let him that stole steal no more. But rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. What does repentance look like when we seek it and we, when we pursue it? Not only do we turn from the sin, but you notice how there's a reversal, of course, here? What was that simplest definition, to turn about? A 180. Rather than stealing... Not only does he not steal anymore, but he's to labor with his own hands. Now what does a thief do? They steal things that don't belong to them because they don't want to work. A couple of weeks ago, somebody stole both of my little girls' bicycles. You want to talk about an angry dad? Be glad I didn't catch them because I would be the one that needs to go to jail. Do not come in my yard. Do not take my things, especially when they belong to my little girls'. I was an angry preacher. Be ye angry and sin not. But rather let him labor. If you stole, don't steal things that don't belong to you. Instead, work. But notice how it goes beyond that. Working with his hands the thing which is good, a good thing to do, an honorable, wholesome way to make a living, that he may have to give to him that needeth. What is repenting from theft? Not only working. Working a wholesome job, but not only working a wholesome job. Working so that you, rather than taking from someone, can give to those who don't have. A complete 180. And you can apply this pattern to every type of sin. Instead of lying, tell the truth, and not only tell the truth, but speak good, uplifting, edifying words. If it's anger... Humble yourself and submit your situation to God. Submit to your situation, calling upon God. If it's fornication, repent of that. Devote yourself to God. Purify the way that you live. Take a spouse and devote yourself single-heartedly to that spouse and their good. Repentance, as we pursue it, Looks like a 180, a reversal, of course. Let him that stole, steal no more. Let him work with his hands the thing that is good, that he might give to those that have need. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for this word. Thank you, Lord, for, first of all, changing our nature, giving us a new nature. We know, Lord, that we still have the flesh, but, Father, you've given us the Spirit and made us partakers of the divine nature and wrought in our hearts, contrition and sorrow and regret over the things that we do wrong. But Lord, we pray that we would act on it. We pray, Father, that your word would equip us how to act on it, that we would know what we ought to do to please you in this world. Because as we began, we know that a life of service to you is a beautiful life. It is a liberating life. It is a wonderful life. It's a glorious life. We want to glorify you with our walk. Lord, we know that we're commanded if we hear the gospel and we believe it, and it pricks our heart. We know it's because you've given us life, but we know that you've also commanded us to repent and to be baptized in your name. We pray, Father, for the strength to either take the first step or the first step of today that might be decades into our walk with you. Father, give us the grace and the strength and the wherewithal, the knowledge to repent. Forgive us of our sins, for we know that we don't repent the way that we ought. We know that we don't even know all the sins we need to repent of. We pray this in Jesus' name. and Amen. Amen. Let's sing number 261.